I'm Satya Doyle Bayak, and this is the Salome Podcast. Something is making its approach to us. Our wars are results of projection, of not being able to understand that what we are actually fighting externally is something we don't want to fight inside of ourselves. Here we are, how will we hold this? How will we hold the light inside the dark? If consciousness is going to shift on the planet, it shifts in the single individual. In each episode, my co-host Carol Ferris and I explore the social and personal relevance of Carl Jung's magnum opus, known as the Red Book. Jung's visions and dive into the unconscious as chronicled in the Red Book began in late 1913 at a time of tremendous social unrest in Europe and beyond. It was shortly before the outbreak of World War I and the beginning of a new era of cultural change that would last for the rest of Jung's life. The political and psychological relevance for our time, over 100 years later, cannot be overstated. Carol and I began recording these episodes as live salons online on the first Sunday of our COVID quarantine in Portland, Oregon, in the spring of 2020. We're continuing to record each episode live with a community of growing members every week, chapter by chapter, until we conclude this important work. At each turn, we're asking the question, why now? What is the value of this work for each of us and for the collective? Carol, a brilliant astrologer, takes on the astrology of Jung's time and of our own. And I, a psychotherapist, writer, and director of the Salome Institute of Jungian Studies, explore the material from the standpoint of Jungian psychology and history. Each week, we welcome the community into our conversation with a concluding Q&A. Welcome everyone. We're really glad you're here. Carol and I are excited to do this with you this morning. Um, and I'm very aware that that excitement is mixed in with uh, an enormous amount of tragedy happening all over the world. That's why we're all gathered. You know, I feel teary just saying that, just really conscious of how much tumult and pain and suffering really is taking place everywhere. I think we're all sort of holding that in addition to, you know, the drop in pollution and um, a number of things that I think, you know, for our personal lives, maybe space we didn't have, time with loved ones we didn't have, um, a chance to do artwork we haven't had for a while. But there's a lot of pain. So just, you know, I think part of this, we're holding each other in community and hoping to start making some gold out of all of this suffering and, um, and try to be gathering together. So, so I am Satya, Satya Doyle Bayak. I'm the director of the Salome Institute. Um, I am a psychotherapist, a Jungian psychotherapist. I'm a writer. I have a psychotherapy practice downtown Portland, And I founded the Salome Institute about, I don't know, three or four years ago, but it really was in alignment with all of this political transformation and was a psychic draw for me more than it was conscious. But this exists, you know, the tagline that I have is um, socially relevant psychology, which is really what I see Jung's psychology fundamentally as being, is deeply personally relevant, but very um, socially relevant. Um, and that's really where we're going to go today. How Jung's work speak to, speaks to us in this moment, um, both in our personal lives and our collective lives. There's a lot to cover. 
in this next 90 minutes. Um, I have no idea who is acquainted in this group with the Red Book, with Jung's work, with astrology. There's a lot of different semi-foreign languages that we're going to be throwing out to you. So, you know, take what you can personally. Um, again, hopefully we'll have decent time at the end for questions, but there's a lot to cover. So I'm going to just have Carol introduce herself here first, and then we'll dive into what we're up to today. Good morning. It's, a, it's such a treat to see so many familiar faces. Thank you for joining us on this Sunday morning. When we, as we begin to get into the material, I will do a kind of crash course on astrological thinking. Why and what does astrology have to say about a moment? And how do we know the nature of a moment? How are we able to frame a moment? And um, as I have studied the Red Book with Satya over the past four or five years, as, I, as it said in our invitation to you, as a clinician, Jung noted the, the dates of his readings. And as I began to read and look at that, how time was affecting him, how, how his own nature in relationship to the times and his understanding of the difference between the spirit of t the times and the spirit of the depths led me to a, a deeper dive into the astrology of the Red Book itself. The, the, this is not a new idea. Other astrologers have written quite beautifully about it, but we'll get into a, a bit of that today, and I will decode as much as I can the astrological language to be useful in terms of Jungian psychology. Thank you, Carol. And for folks who don't know you very well, you wanna just say a little bit about, about you? Oh, well, I, I love the astrological language. In, in the late 60s, I was introduced to the idea that spirit moved through time in a way that could be known. And I've never looked back. Um, all the years of being a, a single parent and a corporate executive, and, and then I've been a full-time practitioner of astrology since the early 80s. I got my master's degree several years ago because I wanted to use my education as a way to frame my understanding of classical Chinese medical thinking and historical, traditional Western zodiacal thinking because both systems have implications for self-governance, not only for personal well-being of aligning yourself with the rhythm of time, but certainly for rulers, uh, how to model good behavior in alignment with the time. So, so that, that is uh, an ongoing interest of mine. I'm, I'm seeing everybody by Zoom now, and I've also been teaching by Zoom. And one of my main interests is this exploration of how do we know the nature of a time for purposes of, I'll use the word self-governance, but what's imp implicated in it is health and the timing of decision-making. So that, that's a little bit about me. Thank you. So Carol and I are gonna be going back and forth probably a bit, um, but I'll try to introduce uh, what I can of the Red Book. So I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna hold up the big book because it's pretty heavy, it's right in front of me. This is the reader's edition of the Red Book. It's around 500 some pages and it has a long history and it goes back to another time that Saturn and Pluto uh, were conjunct, that time in Cancer. And so again, Carol is really gonna take the astrological component of this. But the reason that I have been teaching the Red Book for a number of years now, um, the reason that I was so stimulated by it some 10 years ago when it was first published, 
after being in a Swiss vault uh, archive for um, 50 some years after Jung's passing, um, is that it, it has always had a felt sense to me that it was going to become exceedingly relevant for our world in a way that um, we would need it. You know, that, that Psyche was sort of delivering us this book at the moment that we were going to really need it. And so there's a lot of medicine in here. And, and the medicine is very deep because it speaks to a transformation of consciousness that I think, again, a lot of us have had a very deep felt sense was coming in some form, but not known how to frame it, how to put it into words, or even when to put it into words, how to practice it entirely. So Jung was um, the founder of analytical psychology, um, complex psychology. It has a lot of names, but he started as a psychiatrist when psychiatry was just getting started in the early 1900s, really sort of 1900 was when his career began. He worked with schizophrenic patients. He worked with the deep psyche and really began to understand that in people's psychosis, there was profound symbolism unfolding. So Jung's psychology is where we get the terms, um, the collective unconscious, archetypes, synchronicity, extroversion, introversion, all of typology that we know from Myers-Briggs and all of that has been adapted from Jung's work. His contribution to culture and our language is vast. So what this book is sharing is where he went to in his own deep unconscious around the time, around 1913 and before World War I began. Jung started having all of these visions and he thought he was going schizophrenic himself, becoming schizophrenic himself. They said it differently at the time. But he realized that the importance of it was profound when World War I started. And he began to understand that what was happening for him was not just a personal psychosis, but there was something precognitive happening. And he wanted to understand it. And so he took his scientific self to really begin deeply understanding what was happening in the deep unconscious. And in that, he carefully cataloged everything. And he cataloged things in what are now known as the Black Books, which are still yet to be published, but are going to be published maybe next year. And the Red Book is then this extraordinary calligraphic text that he painstakingly developed and worked on for uh, many, many years after that. So he carefully wrote and created these extraordinary images. And, it, you know, the images themselves are extraordinary, but the story also, which I'm going to read some to you today, is really quite stunning. So over a period of years... Jung was having these visions and they then more and more were coinciding with global events of catastrophe. And there is so much that unfolds in this journey. Um, it really, I speak of it as if it, you know, reads like Jung's only novel, but of course it's not a novel in the traditional sense at all. It is, it is his visions that have not yet been digested into his psychological language. Okay. So it's the magnum opus of his work. And again, it's just now arriving to us like medicine for our times. Um, it's only been published for 10 years or so. I will say by way of a little bio that I also had opportunity to travel with the Red Book to, um, to a couple of museums um, around the world. I worked for the Philemon Foundation right out of graduate school that published the Red Book that brought it to publication with the editor Sonu Shamdasani and a variety of folks. And it was an extraordinary experience for me and really, again, gave me the opportunity to feel this work and, um, and be a part of that world. There's a few really important characters that show up in the Red Book, and I think that Carol and I both want to speak to them today. So I'm going to do a super crash course in a few things here. And I'll say, I guess, four names of characters or major concepts. 
most of Jung's work, Jung's work works uh, is very much living in the binary, right? It's the tension of opposites and the finding of the third, the transcendent with, between that tension of opposites, whether it's the masculine and the feminine, on and on, right? Um, the pr one of the primary uh, tensions that shows up in the Red Book is the spirit of the times and the spirit of the depths. This is Jung's, they don't translate exactly to anything in his psychology. They kind of come in and out of different usage, but, but the easiest way to think of it for me is the ego and, and the unconscious, the deep unconscious. And the relationship between that part of us, the spirit of the times, that is deeply related to linear time and also deep, deeply related to whatever moment in history we're in. And then there's the spirit of the depths, which has a, a much deeper history and root and connects us to the timeless, to timeless existence, you know, to the kind of oceanic experience of the world, the place from which we can gather wisdom for how to live and thrive in this time and beyond, um, despite the chaos, despite the pain. So the, the relationship between the spirit of the times and the spirit of the depths um, keeps us sane, hopefully, or at least helps us come back from insanity and pain. And Jung speaks to these two kind of characters or essences a great deal in the book. So Carol, do you want to speak to that before I go on? No, I'll come to it when we do um, a, a horoscope introduction. Okay. So the spirit of the times and the spirit of the depths are, again, kind of critical characters in the Red Book. The other two critical characters that I want to name, and they are related, you know, but in these binaries, they're not all one-to-one, -one, right? But they have connections to each other. The other two are Elijah and Salome. And... Salome is the root name for the institute that I run, right? The Salome Institute of Jungian Psychology. She is a profound character in the book in that she really ends up becoming Jung's soul. I mean, his recovery of her is a recovery of his own soul. He meets Elijah and Salome early on in the Red Book, and he meets them as a pair. And Elijah is, you know, a very comfortable character for Jung as a man with a deep Christian roots. Um, his father was a pastor. He was very, very comfortable in the Christian tradition. And Elijah was, you know, essentially the Messiah. He understood him to be the Messiah before the Messiah, you know, sort of the Messiah before the coming of Christ. And so when Jung encountered Elijah in his deep unconscious, there was some comfort for him there. Um, but to see him then with Salome, who Jung understood to be the murderer of the Messiah before the Messiah. So this is kind of Christian stuff mixed up, but we can start to see Elijah as being a little bit of a representation of John the Baptist. And um, in Christian history, Salome was a young woman who asked for the head of John the Baptist. I'm not going to get into sort of my feminist retelling of this right now, because it's a really complicated, long exploration. But there's all of these images, you know, you've seen Oscar Wilde's image, there's all these images of this young, beautiful temptress holding a bloody head. There's a lot of Kali imagery. Salome is very connected to Kali in the Hindu mythic tradition as well. So there's this pairing of this wise, sage, older man, the intellect, forethinking. Jung calls him all sorts of different things. Jung's comfortable with that part of himself. And then he discovers this kind of what he perceives as the sort of disheveled, enraged woman. Um, young woman, seductive, you know, 
and he's terrified. Okay. So what happens is that Elijah basically forces him to acknowledge that Salome is part of himself, right? So here is, here is the wise old man being paired with the woman that on some level, um, and again, we mix up the traditions here, but was also responsible for his death. So that's a lot of information, but what, what it kind of gets to is that the journey of the Red Book is very much about Jung navigating his own shift from being an intellectual to being a man who is in relationship to his feminine soul. And that's this, all of this imagery about the, the John the Baptist or Elijah, whatever, you know, the intellect, the intellectual having his head cut off or the masculine having his head cut off. It's a shift from the purely intellectual function down back into the soul, into relationship to the soul and into relationship to the spirit of the depths. Again, it's that ego self relationship. So, so much of the Red Book is fundamentally a shift from patriarchal consciousness to an embodied, soulful, related consciousness. And that is the foundation of Jung's psychology. So it took me a while for myself to understand why Jung's work was so profound for me. But I began slowly to understand that, and I now think of him, again, we, with, for all of his foibles, and we could go on and on, but that he was a pretty profound feminist philosopher. But a very profound feminist philosopher from a direction of, of being a champion of the feminine um, in a culture that was so profoundly out of touch and out of balance. And again, that's something we are all feeling very deeply right now. So what I want to do is by way still of kind of getting started here um, is just read to you kind of a long section of the Red Book so you, we can all feel it together. Okay, so I'm going to do kind of a long reading um, because there's so much artistry in this book. I want to give you all a chance if you've not read the, the book to feel it. And even if you have read it, it's just kind of an invocation for us. I'm going to read some and Carol's going to show a couple of images at the end. Again, there's two primary components of this reading and it's again a huge part of the book. One is the amount of pain that is coming in the world, both from Jung's understanding long past his death, he anticipated an enormous amount of suffering for the planet and it terrified him. And when he was writing this in 1914, 15, 16, um, what he also saw as the coming pain, okay? So in this, a lot unfolds. He's dialoguing with his soul and he gets to a conclusion, which is also our primary conclusion here, which is if consciousness is going to shift on the planet, it shifts in the single individual and not through a separation from the world and not in Jung's mind simply from mindfulness or, or Eastern traditions, but by doing uh, the deep soul work and essentially just like he did with Salome when he encountered something that terrified him and, and repulsed him to find a way to approach these dis discarded aspects of himself so that they didn't get projected out onto the world. For Jung, all of our wars are results of projection, of not being able to understand that what we are actually fighting externally is something we don't want to fight with inside of ourselves. So I'll read this. Listen for those two themes, the self-work and the global pain. This is from... Um, this section called the three prophecies and again he's dialoguing with his soul if you have the book and you want to follow along with the reader it's on page 374 wondrous things came nearer i called my soul and asked her to dive into the floods whose distant roaring i could hear 
This happened on the 22nd of January of the year 1914, as recorded in my black book. And thus she plunged into the darkness like a shot, and from the depths she called out, will you accept what I bring? I will accept what you give. I do not have the right to judge it or reject it. So listen, there is old armor and the rusty gear of our fathers down here, murderous leather trappings hanging from them, worm-eaten lance shafts, twisted spearheads, broken arrows, rotten shields, skulls, the bones of man and horse, old cannons, catapults, crumbling firebrands, smashed assault gear, stone spearheads, stone clubs, sharp bones, chipped arrowhead teeth, everything the battles of yore have littered the earth with. Will you accept all this? I accept it, you know better, my soul. I find painted stones, carved bones with magical signs, talismanic sayings on hanks of leather and small plates of lead, dirty pouches filled with teeth, human hair and fingernails, timbers lashed together, black orbs, moldy animal skins, all the superstitions hatched by dark prehistory. Will you accept all this? I accept it all, how should I dismiss anything? But I find worse, fratricide, cowardly mortal blows, torture, child sacrifice, the annihilation of whole peoples, arson, betrayal, war, rebellion. Will you also accept this? Also this, if it must be, how can I judge? I find epidemics, natural catastrophes, sunken ships, raised cities, frightful feral savagery, famines, human meanness, and fear, whole mountains of fear. So shall it be, since you give it. I find the treasures of all past cultures, magnificent images of gods, spacious temples, paintings, papyrus rolls, sheets of parchment with the characters of bygone languages, books full of lost wisdom, hymns and chants of ancient priests, stories told down the ages through thousands of generations. That is an entire world. I'm sorry, this is Jung now. That is an entire world whose extent I cannot grasp. How can I accept it? but you wanted to accept everything. You do not know your limits. Can you not limit yourself? Jung, I must limit myself. Who could ever grasp such wealth? Soul, be content and cultivate your garden with modesty. I will. I see that it is not worth conquering a larger piece of the immeasurable, but a smaller one instead. A well-tended small garden is better than an ill-tended large garden. Both gardens are equally small when faced with the immeasurable, but unequally cared for. His soul, take shears and prune your trees. This is Jung again. From the flooding darkness the sun of the earth had brought, my soul gave me ancient things that pointed to the future. She gave me three things, the misery of war, the darkness of magic, and the gift of religion. If you are clever, you will understand that these things belong together. These three things mean the unleashing of chaos and its power, just as they also mean the binding of chaos. War is obvious and everybody sees it. Magic is dark and no one sees it. Religion is still to come, but it will become evident. 
Did you think that the horrors of such atrocious warfare would come over us? Did you think that magic existed? Did you think about a new religion? I sat up for long nights and looked ahead at what was to come and I shuddered. Do you believe me? I am not concerned. What should I believe? What should I disbelieve? I saw and I shuddered, but my spirit could not grasp the monstrous and could not conceive the extent of what was to come. The force of my longing languished and powerlessness sank the harvesting hands. I felt the burden of the most terrible work of the time ahead. I saw where and how, but no word can grasp it. No will can conquer it. I could not do otherwise. I let it sink again into the depths. I cannot give it to you, and I can speak only of the way of what is to come. Little good will come to you from outside. What will come lies within yourself. But what lies ahead? I would like to avert my eyes, close my ears, and deny all my senses. I would like to be someone among you who knows nothing and who never saw anything. It is too much and too unexpected. But I saw it, and my memory will not leave me alone. Yet I curtail my longing, which would like to stretch out into the future, and I return to my small garden that presently blooms, and whose extent I can measure. It shall be well tended. The future should be left to those of the future. I return to the small and the real, for this is the great way, the way of what is to come. I return to my simple reality, to my undeniable and most minuscule being, and I take a knife and hold court over everything that has grown without measure and goal. Forests have grown around me, winding plants have climbed up me, and I am completely covered by endless proliferation. The depths are inexhaustible, they give everything. Everything is as good as nothing. Keep a little and you have something. To recognize and know your ambition and your greed together. Your to gather your cravings, to cultivate it, grasp it, make it serviceable, influence it, master it, order it, to give it interpretations and meanings is extravagant. It is lunacy, like everything that transcends its boundaries. How can you hold that which you are not? Would you really like to force everything which you are not under the yoke of your wretched knowledge and understanding? Remember that you can know yourself, and with that, you know enough but you cannot know others and everything else. Beware of knowing what lies beyond yourself or else your presumed knowledge will suffocate the life of those who know themselves. A knower may know himself. That is his limit. So that's our invocation of Jung's work. Carol, I hand it off to you. Well, let me show this um, drawing, first of all, of him tending his garden from the Red Book. And then let me start by, by looking at Carl Jung's horoscope and talk just a little bit as an example of that, of why, why astrology has a contribution to make in how will we live with this time. A horoscope, horo is hour and scope is map. So it is a literal map of the solar system that puts Earth in the middle of the system, not the sun. So Jung was born July 26, 1875 at 7.29 p.m. in Keswil, Switzerland. So what this map is showing us is here in the middle is this place, this real geography, 
and a moment in a sequence. So the map shows place, time, and instant. And if we know that we're standing here in Switzerland, up on a horoscope is looking south. So in your own horoscope, horoscopes are always oriented so that you're standing looking into the southern sky. So left is east, what's rising in the east. And the right-hand side is what's setting in the west. So here is the sun setting at 7.29 p.m. in July. The bottom half of the horoscope isn't just north. It's the underside of the world from Keswell, Switzerland. And so this idea is that it's a picture of us in the middle with the heavens distributed in the sky we can see and around the other side of the world of what we can't see. So a part of what the map is, is how do you, in the vastness of space, how do you locate the planets? And how you locate the planets is by this border that runs around the outside edge, the zodiac. And the zodiac is a wheel of 360 spokes. And so if you stood, if Jung stood here in the middle with a bicycle wheel around his waist that had 360 spokes in it, he would be able to line things up in space to him, spoke by spoke. So the spokes of the wheel are divided into 12 sets of 30 spokes each, the zodiac signs. So the sun, the symbol here, was on the third spoke of Leo, and the planet Uranus was on the 14th spoke of Leo. And over here, the planet Mars was on the 21st spoke of Sagittarius and so on. And the only other thing for these, these purposes that are important to know is this tells us where the planets in the solar system are in the sky in relationship to Switzerland. What are called the houses, which are these divisions numbered counterclockwise one through 12, tell us, well, which part of the earth is this part of the sky over? So houses one, two, three, four, five, six, these divisions are the under backside of the world from Keswell, Switzerland. And these divisions are the mostly the sky that you can see. But the most important part for our purposes is this is what rises. This is south. This is what sets or closes. And this is where we meet the divine, where we meet the, the north, where we're alone. So in the horoscope, houses one through 11, what, I think a part of what a horoscope can describe is we're here. And if we're here, we are a part of time and matter, that gravity will affect us and will age. And that we could say we step into the spirit of a time. And so the activities of this part of any horoscope are where we are time bound and matter bound. But the 12th house from an astrological point of view is where the infinite enters us and where we are, have a portal from this, our limited existence and our existence limited in a finite and particular knowable way, a wintry way, a summery way, a wet way, a dry way, 
a deeply personal way, an intensely public way. All of those things are bound by our entry here. But in the map, the map holds not only the finite, but the infinite. So the map is a picture for an astrologer of the spirit of the times and the spirit of the depths. And this part of the chart is you're here, you're participating, you're limiting, you're choosing, you're in a family, you're in a body, you're in a relationship, you have a public face, you have a deep root, DNA root. But this place is where we contact what's beyond the finite and the, the temporal and, and the, the material. So if we think about this as a picture of Jung stepping into the world, there are some things without doing the whole horoscope that are important to know. So here we have the sun in Leo and Leo late July, early August is, it's the golden child. It's the golden child of the year that what has been held deep at winter, the, the seeds of, of, of the new life that are being closed in by winter are slowly tended. They come to the summer solstice, which is the sign cancer. And then we have new life. We have Leo, the king. So here at the heart of Jung's story, in the, in the way that the sun is the heart of our solar system, it's our heart. It's the heart of our story. It's how we are burning. It's what we are burning to be and to, to and how in a way how our heart is creating stability and consciousness and heat that holds all the other elements of the story together. No sun, no story. So the sun in the horoscope is that intense focal point of, of selfness. And when the sun finds itself in Leo, it's burning hot. It's the hottest time of year, even and maybe especially in Switzerland. It's related to the idea that it's the king of the year, that the whole purpose of the zodiac is to produce fruit, is to produce vegetables, is to pr produce vitality and life. So in astrological cultures, the sign of the lion, Leo, is associated with, with goldenness, with a, a kind of leadership. Very close to the sun is the planet Uranus, which shorthand way to talk about this as a quality or a characteristic of nature, not just human nature, but all of nature, Uranus outside the system. So people like the president of the United States has the sun conjunct Uranus, that at the heart of the story is something that does not work well with the system. So if astrology is a language that is observed rhythmic nature, then the part of our nature is very, we could say repeatable and expectable, time bound and matter bound, that, that the tides, we know what the tides will be, but there's also tsunamis. And so in the astrological model, the planet Uranus is the unexpected or the outside the system energy. So here we have a person who is a king who's also outside the system, who in some way, shape or form is both going to be a leader of 
and lead through being outside the system. 180 degrees opposite from this core burning stabilizing energy, the rising sign Aquarius is astrologies and the zodiac's name for new life. That after winter, Sagittarius Capricorn, after winter comes, not spring, but as the days get marginally longer in late January and early February, there's more light and so there's more heat. And when there's more light and heat, there's more water and there's more movement and there's more movement towards light. So in the astrological model, Aquarius, the, the, the giant man in the sky with a, a huge jar of water who's pouring water back into the system. And really it's how the ancient Chinese thought about this time of year. They would say nature in her generosity is pouring water back into the system. So rising in the east, in Jung's east, to his west and to his east, are this idea of something that is intense and productive and summary and has power by virtue of its position, and something that is open and labile and welcoming, and that likes being on the edge and that is moving into something new. So there's plenty more to say about this horoscope, but I'll just say one more thing because it's germane to looking at the events of the Red Book. Jung also has a very powerful conjunction of the planet Venus in the sign Cancer and the planet Mercury in the sign Cancer, very, very close together. So because he, these planets had set in the West before sunset, we would, he would not have been able to see them in the evening sky. But these two planets in a western sky, if the sun has set before them at sunset, are brilliant. And the symbolism of Venus and Mercury, Venus is our name for relate, our relatedness. And Mercury is a symbol for our ability to read the world, interpret the world, and make sense of the world. So here we have fused together in Jung's nature, in the nature of his arrival and entry and adaptation to the world, to this time, speech, thinking, receptivity, and heart fused together in a highly sensitive, even conservative place, if we think of high summer, like deep winter as the most conservative places of the year, when we are holding life very, very tenderly. So here is the natal horoscope of someone who has a powerful heart that, and has leadership and is a man at a time in Europe when the patriarchy is powerful and when leadership is venerated and worshiped. And this is somebody for whom being in relationship to authority Saturn, the authority figure, is in his first house of self. So here we have a person who is truly a product of his time in terms of being a, a successful man, a smart man, a deeply feeling man, a man who's going to function outside the system, but who also has a profound respect for authority, and who at the time that we encounter him at the time of the Red Book is not to put too fine a point on it, the cheese. He's the starring pupil of Freud, and he is accomplishing things 
in the material world for material purposes with leadership in the outer world. So and let me just stop there and start to see if, you, if there's any comment that you want to make on this. Well, as any good Jungian, um, I, the only thing that I would kind of modify slightly is the comment of his being the student of, of Freud's because um, I, you know, I think that that's just a tiny thing. I um, am so grateful for everything you just engaged with. And I'll just say in terms of his being the cheese, you know, he was still a young man, but was exactly as you said, he had climbed every ladder he could climb. I mean, this is very much his own crisis and his own crisis in this time. And again, his personal crisis was deeply aligned with the crisis unfolding uh, globally. And so for all of us to just feel into our own personal crises right now, or our own transformations, how that's unfolding. Um, also externally, these things are linked, the inner and the outer. But he had found a deep relationship with Freud and Freud had sort of anointed Jung as being his um, heir apparent. And, and a, a lot of Jung's personal crisis was the fact that he didn't really identify as, as um, Freud's student exactly. He identified as Freud's young colleague who was coming at it from a different place, but they had arrived at similar things. And Freud kept trying to make him his heir apparent. And and Jung, and this is all part of this collapse, um, Jung began having dreams that Freud fundamentally couldn't understand and didn't, and he didn't, Freud wrestled with it. He didn't like it. They started arguing essentially. And, um, and Freud couldn't tolerate not being the head cheese, right? And so, so there's all this kind of father-son sort of battle that unfolds. And it shows up very much in both of their psychologies. In any case, so, so Jung had this collapse and, um, and that's where we're going to now. Yeah, with the astrology? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Okay. So I, I want, so here we have uh, not just a map, not just an abstract two-dimensional map, but here we have an entry of a human being into a potent story that's rich and complex and multi multi-charactered and that in the beginning it's all happening in this dimensional world so what i'm going to start to do is i'm going to start to show the horoscope of the actual journey itself and I'll do that by putting Jung's chart in the middle and showing the, the astrology of the events as we get into them. So what we're going to be looking at is this 12th house. Because and a lot of you out there, and I, I see who's in the audience, you're no strangers to the astrology of the 12th house. That, that the, the great um, conundrum of living in this spirit of the time and spirit of the place when something in you is in relationship to what is infinite and rich and, um, and uh, affective, the spirit of the depths. So Jung's introduction, I'm going to put up another horoscope. Jung's introduction began with a dream that he had in um, 1913, as Satya pointed out, a time that is very parallel or an outcome um, uh, that, that was an origin for what we are experiencing right now. So I'm going to read a little bit of his description of the dream. So this first circle is you can see that now a very powerful energy has entered 
Jung's 12th house, has knocked on the door. The infinite is knocking on Jung's soul. And it's setting off a vibration to everything else that it's in his chart, but particularly here to Venus and Mercury. So his soul is holding something up to bring him into some kind of awareness about how he thinks and about his feminine nature. So for those of you who have the reader's edition, it's, this is page 123 in the reader's edition of the Red Book. It happened in October of the year 1913, as I was leaving alone for a journey, that during the day I was suddenly overcome in broad daylight by a vision. I saw a terrible flood that covered all the northern and low-lying lands between the North Sea and the Alps. It reached from England up to Russia and from the coast of the North Sea right up to the Alps. I saw yellow waves, swimming rubble, and the death of countless thousands. This vision lasted for two hours. It confused me and made me ill. I was not able to interpret it. Two weeks passed, then the vision returned, still more violent than before, and an inner voice spoke, look at it. It is completely real, and it will come to pass. You cannot doubt this. I wrestled again for two hours with this vision, but it held me fast. It left me exhausted and confused, and I thought my mind had gone crazy. So this is in, on October 17th of 1913, is this two-hour dream of, of being overwhelmed. Um, actually, since Jupiter is in Capricorn <laughs> right now, and Jupiter entered Capricorn in November of 2019, Jupiter is, is the Roman name for the god Zeus. So it is a way that we humans, through our mythology, characterize potent archetypal forces in nature, not just symbols, not just psychological phenomena, potent moving energies in nature. And so here we have Zeus slash Jupiter. You know, those of you who have worked with me know, you know, Zeus screwed everything that moved. You know, he couldn't stay tied to his feminine side and he was the first God to bear his own child from his head. So here we have this powerful energy in Capricorn, which Zeus inflates things and makes things big and is creative and expansive. Um, my clients who are five element acupuncturists call, call it uh, relentless flora, that the wood element is relentless flora. And Zeus is associated with this kind of energy that something is unstoppable. This is an, 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 an unstoppable force. And so this is the energy that knocked on the door into Jung's relationship with the spirit of the depths. And it revealed to him the flood that was to come, which was, of course, World War I, in which thousands died. And this same Jupiter and Capricorn entered, and Jupiter entered Capricorn in this, our world, in November of 2019. So things that were already in a way difficult enough, magnified and expanded and exploded. So we're, we're very much in that period of time. What was very interesting to me about the astrology of it is that 10 days later, Jung broke with Freud. 
that that in some ways without going through all of the rest of the astrology of it that that this vision was so profound and that it was so important for Jung to pay attention to it and to honor it that it so called him to this place that he couldn't not answer and that to stay where he was was impossible so any observations about that satya no, I think that's beautiful, Carol. You know, there's so many things that I hear you weaving in and out. And, you know, again, for me to highlight them, one is the relationship of Jung's personal collapse with the, the global and collective collapse and, and his attempt to deeply understand the interconnection with those two things, as well as kind of ride those waves as much as he possibly could without collapsing entirely, you know? And, and again, that is the story of the entire Red Book and then Jung's psychology, which comes from that. But the other is the very explicit sign astrological signatures as related to Jung's time and our time right now, that there's a number of very specific cataclysmic, I mean, as we're all very much experiencing now, astrological signatures that um, seem to be either mirrors or, or the same on some fundamental level of what was happening then. Um, so the, let me, uh, he, he goes on to say, um, I, think, I think I was thinking about your use of the word psychosis and about Jung really fearful of his own psychosis, that, he, that because he was seeing things the way he was seeing things, that he felt that he, that he was having a psychotic break. So many of us, when we talk about this, what we're going through right now is, is this happening? Right. Is this real? And, um, and I, for those of you who are, are unions, you will remember that the, the uh, philosopher and very good astrologer Rick Tarnas came to visit the Oregon Friends of Jung in November of 2018. And people in the audience said to him what they were already anticipating anticipating this what does it mean that saturn contraction and pluto underworld are in our collective understanding getting closer and closer and closer together in the sign of winter capricorn and tarnas that maybe in the question and answer some of you may remember his answer more clearly than i do but tarnas talked about this this global failure to really understand how we are killing our soul and how it's showing up in climate relationship productivity and fruitfulness and um he's and Turner said something like we don't believe it till we're dying and i found this incredible quote of jung's he said on 150 because i was caught up in the spirit of the times Precisely what happened to me on this night had to happen to me, namely that the spirit of the depths erupted with force and swept away the spirit of this time with a powerful wave. You thought you knew the abyss? Oh, you clever people. It's another thing to experience it. Thank you, Carol. I'm going to read another quote from the Red Book to to pair with yours. This is on page 204 of the reader. He says, may the frightfulness become so great that it can turn men's eyes inward so that their will no longer seeks the self in others, but in themselves. And there's another on page 172. 
If we are in ourselves, we fulfill the need of the self. We prosper. And through this, we become aware of the needs of the communal and can fulfill them. So I want to just screen, so share one more thing with folks before we open it up to Q&A, okay? This is, this is, Jung had a whole series of profound visions and the astrology of that is interesting. But by January 22nd, he was asking his soul to dive into the flood. Now he has met his soul and now he's in it. And look at the traffic jam here in the 12th house. Not only are the planets Uranus and the sun hovering over his rising sign and breaking open new life, but, and we're about to encounter this, Jupiter's going to move into Aquarius and Saturn is going to move into Aquarius at the end of this year. He, 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 there, there is this incredible collection of entities, spirits, insights, understandings, movies, tones, and potency that's coming to him from the depths. And that now, by now, even two months later, he has found a way to enter it instead of only be afraid of it. So that's really it, right? I mean, everything we're talking about and, and what I think so many of us are seeing as the opportunity right now is this is alchemy. So, you know, all of the understanding of, of alchemy as a psychological process really comes from Jung and it comes from this moment. It's, it's turning the shit into gold. You know, it is for all of us finding a way that can only be done inside of our own skins. That, that is not about, um, again, it's not simply about, um, you know, a kind of more classic ascetic practice. And that's part of Jung encounters um, ascetic monks throughout the Red Book. And there's, again, a lot of discussion of sort of the right way. Jung's primary message is there is one right way, and that is your way. That the right way is, is very specific to each person, and he sees that astrologically too. We all have a different combination of these energies, and our individual job is to bring that combination out into the world in some form of lived experience. That it is not about retreating from the world, it is about turning the shit of existence and of these moments into gold. And that we can only do that through our own lived lives. And so all of this contraction into our personal spaces, into a much slower speed of living, is an opportunity. Um, how do we move into an alchemical state of transforming all of this chaos into something that we'll need, the magic we will need going forward? Um, what are we going to need and what do we all need now, right? And, and again, this was fundamental to Jung's work. I just want to close my portion of it and then I would love to hear questions. Yeah. Um, in the astrological model, the sign Capricorn is the goat and the sign Capricorn is deep winter. It's from the winter solstice around December 20th to around January 20th. And from a, let's say, a very simple understanding that astrology is a language of season, it's deep winter and it's when the yin energy is enclosing the yang energy and conserving it 
to keep it safe so that when the light returns, it can grow. So Capricorn is, lives in all of us in our desire to build things well that can serve us. It's our bones and teeth. It's our grades in school. It's our relationship to the structures that we choose to limit ourselves. It's our government. It's Wall Street. It's rules and laws. So a part of what we're experiencing is that Capricorn is about contraction and that it can also, there can be over contraction. It can lead to tyranny. It can lead to collapse if you squeeze things too hard. If you don't hold things strongly enough, there's no safety and there's no conservation. So the finding the middle way in this, how we hold things to keep the light inside the dark has been challenged by time since September of 2008. September of 2008 was the first announcement from the spirit of the times, I'm taking you into the spirit of the depths. And of course, how it was experienced around the world was through governments and stock markets. That was the first wave of what we're experiencing now is that there was a collapse. And we, everybody went, no, oh, we're going to make it like it was. And then as if somehow that could be ignored, the intensification and the narrowing and the strengthening of the contraction since January of 2018, the arrival of Jupiter and the, the, the intensity that we're experiencing now is um, both the benefit and the terror of winter. I mean, it's no mystery to me why the Game of Thrones and the Kingdom of Ice in the North and the Death Dealing King has been so much in the popular imagination for the last 15 years is because it, it's an, a literal outpicturing of the energy of, and you know, all these kind of apocalyptic fears and these dystopian ideas, the sense something is making its approach to us, the rough beach slouching towards Bethlehem. And so I have a lot of clients who have been feeling it and who are actually relieved because now what they were feeling is here. So that here we are, how will we hold this? How will we hold the light inside the dark? Thank you, Carol, beautiful. Um, you know, and again, just reminds me of Jung's own experience that he he knew he felt so deeply that something was happening, and there was an ironic relief to him um, when World War One started because it helped him to understand that he wasn't actually losing his mind, that there was a precognition. You know, and again, I, I think just as you say, a lot of us have been feeling a strange unsettledness, and so there's something is now unfolding externally. Um, we are going to try to take questions. So technology, here we go. So I think you can unmute yourselves now, hopefully. So please just feel free <laughs> to ask a question of us. We're going to roll with this. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi, Tally. Hi. Oh, my gosh. You, you ladies are amazing. Thank you for doing this. One question is, that came to mind as I, um, I just I hear a lot of Buddhism, and, and there's a lot of similarity to that sense of finding the inner wisdom and really going inside to find a way to connect with and heal and and all of the things that you know Jung I, I've never really studied Jung so this is new to me um, and I guess I would just love to hear from you 
your perspective on how this connects back to the Buddha or how that is in relation to, um, you know, the, the idea that we can find the, the relationship among us all just inside. And then um, I guess the only other thing was really astounding. Sorry, the crow is really, <laughs> um, um, is the idea that, and I don't know if you said this, I want you to expand on it a little bit, but the idea that I, I is this going to sound really weird and maybe um, I, I feel slight relief to see not, not, it sounds terrible. I'm not meaning like relief that there's a pandemic, but it's almost like, you know, how when you, when I am anticipating the worst thing coming, the anticipation of it can be crippling, but when I'm faced with what it is, I might have more clarity about how I'm going to handle it. Or I don't know, there's just something like less foreboding because even though it's so scary. So I think Carol or uh, Satya said something to that effect, but I would like you to expand just a little, if you don't mind. Sure. Thank oh. you. Uh, let, me, let me start by saying that in ancient Greece, before the patriarchy took over, there were priestesses who read the cries of crows for people who came to the oracle. So you're getting some really good information right where you're sitting. <laughs> That's the first thing that I would say. The second thing is I've been very struck by the, I'm, I'm, I'm not deeply uh, understanding Buddhist practices, but if I have a, a, a really, a shallow understanding of the Four Noble Truths. The first Noble Truth is that all life is suffering. And the second is that suffering comes from attachment. And the third is that you can become not attached. And I think the, what Jung shows us is, is what happens to a culture that creates structures that keep us from a, a warm, living, potent relationship with, the, with the, each other and the present. And, and so I, it, I, it's a great question because I was thinking about what we're all attached to, you know, of I, I, in my own neighborhood, in my own trees, with all my wonderful neighbors and their children, um, my own family, about how what does this mean for us about what we've built that is extraneous or inhibiting or that keeps us from the more present moment with each other and, and, and with the world? And so this idea of coming back to yourself, that you're the only one, that, that, that not, not some narcissistic engagement with your you know, foibles or your hopes, but your being as opposed to your ownership or your, or your um, profession or your accomplishments, yeah, I, f I feel like it's very Buddhist in that sense. This is something I've thought about a lot, and I, I, I'll, I'm going to keep my responses brief here, um, but, well, relatively. Let's see what happens. <laughs> you know, Jung's psychology is, is more, I think, a weaving of Buddhism and Christianity than it is one or the other. Um, primary for Jung was that it is not just about the inner world. It is about totally the inner world and totally the outer world. And we have to find some meeting place in that binary. 
Um, it's also very much about engaging with the personal soul versus simply um, quieting the mind or following any specific practices. It's finding one's own fundamental way. And so core to everything that he says is that we have to live our animal lives. We have to live our embodied lives. And if that means bumping up against whatever tradition or dogma or structure or expectation that comes at us, it means destroying that structure because somebody else built it. So I think my interpretation of it is that Jung would say that Buddha, just like Jesus, lived their existence. And everyone since them is living an interpretation of those people's existence versus finding their own methods where we can borrow the methods of people who have come before us and integrate them. Um, but that for all traditions over the last several thousand years, there's a fundamental patriarchal essence to all of it, regardless of the religion. They are all fundamentally, you know, run by men and typically run by men for men. And core to Jung's psychology, again, as a, as a European man with an enormous amount of wealth at the top of his uh, professional career, he understood, and this is why I think of him as a pioneering feminist philosopher, and I, you know, sort of ironically, he understood that what was missing was his own feminine soul, that no religion could teach him how to get there. He had to go reclaim that for himself. And so I think that's the fundamental teaching from Jung's psychology outside of any specific religious tradition. It is how to find the relationship as if the inner marriage, you know, that's what it came to for him. No one else teaches us how to be in a deep, deep relationship with our own partner. Um, we find that for ourselves, right? So, so it's, it, is, it has similarities to Buddhism as it has similarities really to, to Gnostic Christianity and a lot of traditions, but it is, it is unique as well. That was my brief answer. Um, uh, so, okay, now I see the hands. So Jennifer. Okay. Hi there. Thank you so much, both of you. And thank you, Carol. I'm just loving your insights into the chart. And I'm looking, I would love to hear you speak about Jung's astrological moon, just briefly. And I'm looking at how it's involved in that T-square with Saturn and Uranus and how, you know, Pluto's in a loose conjunction with that moon. And um, which brings the energy of, you know, maybe the dark or the underworld feminine. And uh, we've, Carol and I have gone through a reading of the Red Book with Satya and I'm thinking about uh, all of the, the, the imagery around the dark feminine and the fact that Salome and his soul both appear to him as a serpent uh, and sometimes in really dark contexts or underground contexts that Salome is bringing up all of this material from the underworld that we heard in the three prophecies. And I, I just know you have so much richness to share around this. So I'll... I don't know. I'm not sure I have anything to add. <laughs> oh. that, was, that was pretty wonderful. I mean, what... What I've been concentrating on is is the twelfth house transits and how it has touched his son has touched these. Yeah. But here is what Jennifer is talking about, just in terms of the horoscope. Here are the moon, the symbols for the moon, and for Pluto, and they're very close together. They're within eight degrees of each other. They're in a square that is a 90 degree angle relationship around the circle. So if you divided a circle by four, you would get four angles. So they're in a square to Saturn and in a square to Uranus and Saturn and Uranus are widely opposite each other. 
let me talk a little bit about moon moon pluto from a really from a psychological point of view the moon i have a very kind of simple take on the moon that um that comes from that the sun burns and the moon doesn't and so not in sumer in mesopotamia in in the in the ancient near east cradle of astrology but as astrology grows more, more widely the moon it, uh, the idea that she carries life that she's a she not a he that because she doesn't burn she carries and has become to be associated with that sort of root idea as our mother ness so if astrology describes not just human nature but describes all of nature we are all have motherness as it's implicit in us that we not only are born to a mother but that we are a mother and that we have a relationship with a woman who happens to be our mother we have a relationship with mother earth and we have a relationship with mother nature we have that that we are motherness and that each of us are held not only by our personal mother but by the motherness of the world in a particular kind of way my aside is that the moon is the astrologer's full employment act <laughs> you know that 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 our, our longing to be held and nourished is and how we form a story around that is is important in astrological language and as, as satya observed um uh, men and kings uh, one of the things i've been struggling with with my own language for the past 15 years is that astrology was written by men for kings and so a challenge of of contemporary astrologers is to not continue to drag the biases of powerful tribal men into modern astrological understanding and in the, that early understanding there's better best for male behavior and female behavior and in that that frame moon is exalted in taurus it means that jung at the time that jung was born he has inside him the great mother capital g capital m that motherness nourishment a relationship with the feminine is profound and powerful and generative like even luxurious never mind jung's experience with wealthy women all his life he had a wealthy wife that made it possible for him to have the kind of life he had but his inner sense of motherness his lived motherness and how he was towards with generosity and even luxury towards his um people towards whom he was maternal is ample but she's in the embrace of the underworld and so pluto hades you know when when poseidon and zeus and Hades were dividing things up. Zeus got the sky and Poseidon got the the ocean and Hades got the underworld. And th that world um in any world culture the power of that place, you know, his brothers knew that he was powerful because people would people would go to the sky and go to to the sea, but they had the possibility of coming back. if you went to Hades world you didn't come back or you had to put gold under your tongue and pay for the journey 
And, um, and, and then it was still, you know, potluck, whether you got across the rivers and into the Elysium fields with an opportunity to reincarnate. So this idea that there's this place, which um, is, depending upon your cultural predisposition, dark and an underworld. Well, it's psychology. One really good definition of, psycho of, of Pluto is it's psychology. There was a time in the evolution of, of the mythologies when Pluto's name was Plautus, which meant riches under the earth. And so to this day, the, the symbolism is still gold and silver and turquoise. And, and in modern world, Pluto's associated with oil, the riches that come from that underworld. And so we can also, on one level, we can interpret this closeness of motherness and underworld with this gusher of deep psychology of bringing with, you know, of being nourished by the underworld and of sharing what it is that nourishes him more broadly out into the world. That's one thing that we could say about it. The other thing that, that I often feel and um, when I see Moon Pluto, and this has is rooted in the incredible work that Liz Green and Carolyn Mace and Lynn Bell did at the Center for Psychological Astrology in London back in the 70s and 80s, is that this is the myth of Demeter and Persephone. Mm -hmm. And this is the mother and the god of the underworld arguing over the child. And that in the end, they share her. And she spends half of the year alive and blooming in the upper world and half of the year in the underworld with her with her husband. So there's something here psychologically for Jung about, um, especially in the goldenness of Leo, if you look at the, the, the sunny, the fair-haired, the golden mm -hmm. sun, and beloved by the feminine, and making richness out of darkness. You know, if you think about his own, when you read his autobiography, but it's also square to Saturn. So Saturn and Aquarius, the dry authority figure, you know, the, 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 the builder of limits and structures. So you can see how, I mean, Jung made gold out of his own birth. Um, I mean, if, if this guy came to you as a client, you'd have a field day because of, of the incredible richness of what wants to come into being as he enters and begins to enter the world. Anyway, long, longer winded than I intended, but thank you. Jenny, anything um, you want to, as an astrologer yourself, anything you want to say? No, I, I really appreciated that. My moon is um, conjunct Carl Jung's moon at 14 degrees Taurus. And I, and I relate so much to all of the gardening imagery in the passage. And um, yeah, so I really appreciate that um, sharing, Carol. And I, I did want to briefly mention this beautiful book by Ms. Green. It's in two volumes. Yeah. Young Studies in Astrology and the Astrological World of Libra Novus. And um, there's a bunch of long-winded stuff I'd love to share in here about Salome, the scholar's daughter, and the cook as they relate to the moon. But that's for another time. Yeah, gosh, there's so much. I mean, Jenny, that's helpful. There's so there's so many stories in the Red Book where Solomon and Elijah keep showing up in different forms, and they're just these amazing stories. Some of them are hilarious. Some of them are, you know, more painful. I mean, it's just extraordinary. So I will say, I mean, we're we're going to wrap up now. I want to always end on time, but um, 
you know, Carol and I, I think, you know, we're all feeling, but as Carol and I have spoken about this, you know, it seems pretty clear now, even though in a way I was hoping we were somehow through this difficult astrology already. And it's become quite clear. It just started, you know, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, it's actually just started, you know? Um, And so we're in this for the long haul, whether this is this strange um, isolation that we're all experiencing and hopefully making the most of our, our deepening community, our deepening global community. It's all really stirring and beginning now. So it's our hope in some form to be offering things more regularly and space for discussion and also this hopefully this presentation of material that um, we hope is valuable. I really welcome folks to um, email either of us, whoever you may know, also sign up for the Salome newsletter, portlandyoung.com. Please get on the newsletter. Please check in. We're going to maybe be doing this weekly by going through the book, but we haven't fully clarified our plan. So I don't want to commit to anything completely. Um, And right now the hope is that it's free um, with the um, invitation to donate. Um, so there's a donation button on the page, but um, but again, we're figuring this out bit by bit, and there's so much rich material, just as Jenny began to point to, um, it's really quite endless. So Carol, anything before we conclude? What are your thoughts? Um, I just want to say how very fortunate I feel to have the luxury to have this conversation when the people who are delivering my mail and who are packing the groceries and who are driving buses and who are answering hotlines and who live on the street. This is a, I, I don't forget this, that in, in a way that Jung also, because of his personal circumstances, had the wherewithal to make this kind of, of journey that is, it's not a luxury. It's to me, it's just so necessary. And that um, to, to take this on individually and personally in the way that we can in the way that we have is so primary to the moment yeah so i thank you for the opportunity to have the conversation yes likewise for me this is you know this for me is a culmination of years and years and years of activism in much more um classic ways and for me it kept feeling like I, i was hitting the top rung of the activist ladder, so to speak, and realizing somehow we had to do this subterraneally if it was ever gonna actually shift the planet. If we keep kind of weeding once the weeds have sprouted, um, that's just a -a whack-a-mole game for eternity. So for me, this work is somehow getting down subterraneally inside of our own beings, retracting projection, remembering what love is, reconnecting to arrows, reconnecting to embodiment, reconnecting to nature and animals and insects, the creatures, the sunshine. The, the crows. Say again, the crows. the crows. That this is where this all begins. And so, you know, um, yes, all of this. We're, we are in and it's such a pleasure for all of us to be able to join together. So we're going to end now. Please send notes. Feel free. We'd love to be in community. Um, and love to all of you and love to your people. Love to all of you. And thank you, Carol. Thank you, Satya. Bye-bye. Bye, all. For more, please visit salameinstitute.com. 
And please review, rate, and subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. Many thanks to our producer, Ayal Alvis, for turning this audio into a podcast, to the very talented Haley Hendricks for our intro and outro music, and to Ray Davis for our podcast art. We're grateful to all of you. Please tune in soon for another episode of the Salome podcast. <laughs>